0: Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, October fourteenth. I'm Jason Moser, and joining me in the studio today via Skype, certified financial planner, Mister Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going?
1: Pretty good. The weather's finally starting to turn for the better down here.
0: Yeah, you know it's uh, it's cooling off. Uh, it's cooling off up here too. It's starting to feel good. I love the change in the seasons. Um, I'm a fan of fall. So uh, yeah, it's a good it's a good time of year, and we got earnings season getting ready to kick off. So that means, shoot, man, for the next month we ought to have plenty to talk about. So on today's financial show, we're gonna dig into some mistakes that you may want to avoid in purchasing rental property. We're gonna have more. Of what's the last stock you bought and why? Of course, we'll have a couple of stocks for you to watch for the coming week. But Matt, let's lead off today um, on today's financial show with a headline that we've been discuss- uh, discussing recently, and it's really it also it also uh, works right in nicely with an email question we got from a listener as well. But let's start with the topic here first, and and you know we're looking at some data here that tells us that CEO departures are on pace for a record year. This year, and it's worth noting. I mean, this is not just CEOs of publicly traded companies. I mean, this is CEOs of um, any company, really, private and public. Uh, and it does look like this year they are um, they are. Headed for a record year as far as departures go. Uh, what what do you make of this? I mean, we've we've seen some very high profile CEOs stepping down from their positions, and there have been reasons for that. Um, but when we look at this in general, I mean, 2019 seems to be a bit of a busier year uh, when it comes to turnover in the executive suite. And um, wondering what you make of that.
1: Well, the report that we were looking at says that the primary reason has been either stepping down to hand over to a new leadership or for just retirement purposes. Right. Um, Kind of the thing I really kind of read between the lines here is that over the past decade or so, we've seen like a wave of startup businesses. Yeah. More so than in previous decades, Um, and you can see that with the IPO market this year. Kind of the. The cycle is coming to a a high point, if you will. Um, the previous high year for uh, CEO departures was t- two thousand eight, and we all know what happened right then. Yeah. Um, so since that time, like over the past ten years or so, you've seen a lot of companies formed and grow to the point where they're, you know, bigger businesses now. And this will tie into the the email you're referring to. Um, you're seeing all these businesses kind of start to get bigger and bigger and mature. So the original CEOs in a lot of cases seem to be stepping aside to let, you know, a more experienced management team take the reins. Um, it's it's not uncommon in the startup world. Of course, as we'll discuss in a minute, there are a lot of CEOs that have been with their company since day one and are still leading them today. And I would we would never want that to change, but in a lot of cases, it just seems like a, a byproduct of the you know just the startup culture of the past ten years.
0: Well, I think I think you're you, you've keyed in on something there that that um, is is right. Um, and to put some numbers around this, I mean, uh, according to this study from um business and executive coaching firm Challenger Gray and Christmas there were 1160 CEO departures in 2019 through September so you know we're just really kind of coming up to the midpoint of October here uh but but really through September I mean that that is a that that's a that's a lot, you know. That seems like a lot, at least. And to your point about the tech sector, or at least these this startup sector, and most of those startup companies really are tech related. Um, I mean, the tech space the departures they are twenty one percent higher than last year at this point. So to your point there, I mean, we have seen a lot of these startups, and as they mature, I mean, they start making this uh, segue into a new stage of growth, perhaps, and maybe that's where. Uh, the CEO that was helping them get to where they uh, have gotten just doesn't really possess the same skill set required to keep them going uh, further from there.
1: Right. Um, I, the WeWork CEO is a, a recent example. That pretty much all the after the, that IPO debacle, uh, we could spend a whole episode talking about that. <laughs> yep. But I mean, pretty much all the investors said, "You're not the right one to lead this company forward. Let's you know step down. We need somebody else in charge." and That's not uncommon. That was just a high-profile case, but that's really not an uncommon thing. Yeah, among you know rapidly growing newer businesses.
0: Yeah, and and beyond just the idea that there's a CEO that perhaps isn't fit to take the company to the next level. um, You know, we also saw and we are seeing we have seen a lot of turnover due to some misbehavior, some ethical concerns, some, some, uh, some, some troubling behavior there. And if, if we go back to 2018, uh, in 2018, we saw quite a few CEOs who were forced out of their positions for ethical reasons. And in fact, 39% of CEOs were forced out for ethical lapses rather than financial performance or board struggles. So, when you look at the CEOs who, who left in 2018, there were far more who were forced out for ethical lapses, then for financial performance or board struggles. And that number, I mean, it was up 50% compared to the number um, that was recorded in 2017. So, we have certainly seen, as, as social media has brought a lot of things to the forefront, uh, misbehavior is not only being discovered more, uh, more quickly, but it, it's clearly not being tolerated.
1: It wasn't wasn't Uber one of the 2018 departures? I
0: think so. Yeah, Travis, I think was back in 2018,
1: wasn't he? Yeah. So that's uh, and these are things that weren't happening. It like you just mentioned prior to the emergence of social media, no one really paid attention to what CEOs were doing in their private lives because all this stuff wasn't really out there. Yeah. I'm just speaking broadly, um, you know, our lives were, you know, less out in the open. If I said something silly. Now odds are some someone has it on videotape, and years <laughs> yeah. ago that wasn't the case. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and, and you know, there's fewer high profile people than CEOs of multi billion dollar companies. Yeah. So that it's not surprising that that's definitely that's become a much bigger reason for CEO departures. <laughs>
0: Yeah and and I tell you let's let's go ahead and get into the listener email that we're talking about because this really does um this does just segue nicely I think and it's an email we got from Jerry Lynch and Jerry he says he's a happy fool fan from Florida so Jerry we're we're happy that you're happy, and we appreciate you listening. But Jerry writes, The Motley Fool's focus on the importance of the founder-controlled public company raises the long-term question, when is it best, in terms of market cap or market share, for the founder or CEO to turn over control to a professional executive team? My main concern is that the aging founder will choose a nepotistic option instead. Uh, so, a few things to unpack there. Uh, but first and foremost, let's just look at, when we think maybe it's appropriate for the founder leader to consider handing over the reins um, to someone that is a bit more uh, able to take the company to the next level. Uh, because we've certainly seen examples like this in the past. I mean, of course, we love founder leaders, but a founder leader might not always be. The right choice for the company to be able to take the you know for the to to be able to take that company to the next level. So you have examples that go both ways there. but what do you think there?
1: I mean I'm kind of torn on that issue just because there's a lot of founders that I hope never leave, like Jack Dorsey, yeah. I hope never leaves square. yeah. Um, I think he's one of the reasons that company has done so well and has jumped to the next level over the past few years, I think as you're I'm right. pretty, much, pretty sure we can all agree that it has.
0: And I think that, uh, Reed Hastings with Netflix, another very good example of someone. I, I can't imagine anyone else running that company.
1: Right, or uh, I mean, I could go on with that, but yeah. there's a, like, can you imagine anyone but Elon Musk running Tesla? Um, well, personally, <laughs> I kind of would put Tesla in that class where I think someone
0: else should be the CEO there, but that's just one man's opinion, man. Well, we'll leave that for another day.
1: <laughs> well, no, that's a good point. So the the reasons why you probably think that are one, his behavior, yes, and and, uh, and two, some questionable business calls, yeah. Um,
0: and and I feel and, like he's just. I feel like Elon Musk is a great example of someone who's perhaps spreading himself a little bit too thin.
1: Right. Well, and, and that's kind of what I mean when it looks like someone's either making questionable business decisions or is getting to the point where they can't really handle the entire operation by themselves. Or you know, so Elon Musk is in my mind kind of a borderline one. I just think yeah. of his name as synonymous with Tesla. That's oh why yeah, yeah. I well,
0: I, I do agree with you there. I mean, it, it's hard to imagine. Tesla sands Elon Musk. I mean, I could imagine it with him in a different leadership uh, position, whether that's the director or something else. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I do agree with you there.
1: And I mean, another thing that we consider the fool, just to kind of add to that email, we don't just want founder-led businesses. We want founders who also have a lot of skin in the game. True. So it's important to mention that there's kind of two sides to that. I I want a founder that o- still owns you know 30 percent of the company. Because their interests are definitely aligned with mine.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a
1: good, um, that's a good point. So, if a founder has, I mean, there's, we, we, I know of a few founder-led businesses where the founder owns, say, one or two percent of the company, and that's not the same from an investor's standpoint as a founder who still owns a third of the business. Yeah, um, like like Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook. Um, it's it's clear that you know he's clearly led the company up several levels of the ladder. And his, I'm not sure the exact percentage that he still owns because it's not really in my wheelhouse. But I know it's up there.
0: Well, yeah, it's it's the controlling voting percentage that all that's all that really matters. Like the buck stops with him,
1: right? And I mean, he still owns you know billions and billions of dollars of Facebook stock. So as the company does better, he does better. I know he's not the most money motivated person in the world, but it's still you know an alignment of interest issue. So it's not just founder it's you know a founder slash partner I guess you would say
0: yeah and there's there's an interesting part of the question here because Jerry asks about in terms of market cap or market share and it's probably a bit more difficult to recognize a specific number where you feel like okay this person is you know, suited or not suited to lead this company forward. I think it's 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 a bit different for every situation. And so you look at something like, I mean, you look at something like Chipotle, for example, with Steve Ells. And for the longest time, I mean, he could do no wrong. I mean, when everything was going right, it was. I mean, Chipotle was lighting the world on fire. Ells Ells just had it all figured out. And then slowly but surely, things started to fall apart a little bit, and it became abundantly clear in time that he didn't really have the full skill set to be able to take this company to the next level. And and so I mean I I don't know that there was a market cap number that really was in mind when we were looking at that from the investing perspective, but we were looking at it from Uh, uh, Quantitatively speaking, we were looking at it from just the the presence of the market share of how many stores Chipotle had opened. I mean, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 2000, maybe a little bit, maybe, you know, a little bit under that. But it became clear that once they had become a national phenomenon with this big supply chain that they needed to manage and and messages they needed to communicate um, and just ongoing challenges. That that they always needed to address. It just became clear that that Steve Ells wasn't really the guy that had. Either the skill set or the time or some combination thereof that was required to take that business to the next level, um, and so you know you, you fast forward, you bring in Brian Nickel, in, and it's just been an amazing comeback story for that company. And, and I attribute some of that to the fact that, that Nickel has that exposure to the quick service restaurant space with with Taco Bell. He was able to bring over some of those philosophies, some of those ideas, that experience, and and marry that into a strategy for Chipotle. That while it pursues a little bit of a different market in fast casual, a, a lot of those Strategies still ultimately hold hold true, and and we've got what we've got today—a company that seems like it's rebounded nicely and is it is continuing that that onward uh, upward trajectory.
1: Yeah, and it's definitely a very fluid situation with a lot of these CEOs. Um, Jack Dorsey, who I mentioned a little while ago, is another example. When Square first went public for less than the initial price range that people thought it was going to price at, and languished at about nine or ten dollars a share for a couple of years. You heard all these calls. Oh, he can't manage both companies. He's not the one to take us forward. <laughs> no one is saying that now. No. If anything, people are saying he should step down from Twitter and focus on Square.
0: Yeah. So yeah.
1: I mean, it, and that's just it's like you said. It's when everything's going great, people have one thing to say, and then when people things are going poorly, you got you really have to take that with a grain of salt. And just kind of, you know, it's a tough call. Do you let the guy see his vision through, or do you? Put someone else in right away. So yeah,
0: and that's where corporate govern—that's where corporate governance really comes into play. Into um, the last part of Jerry's question, there, my main concern about uh, the the aging founder will choose a, a nepotistic option instead. I—I um, I, I mean, I'm assuming that you're referring to someone directly related to the founder, Jerry. Uh, and, and I don't know that we see that all of that. I mean, we don't see that all that often, really. Um, now, if you're referring to bringing someone up in the ranks who has Maybe they're not biologically family, but very close to the founder leader in in helping execute the vision from the very get-go. I can certainly see the concerns there. Um, and I think, again, it's a case-by-case thing, but you look at something like a Costco, where you've got Jim Senegal, who was able to bring Craig Jelinek into the CEO role. And, and Jelinek had worked side-by-side with Senegal for many, many years. Um, and so, if you consider that nepotistic, well, so be it. But it could be argued that Craig Jelinek has certainly kept that ball rolling, uh, for Costco and investors have benefited as well. Um, but, but I mean, nevertheless, very good question. Good things to think about, and I hope we've uh, shed a little bit of light on how we view that here, um, and certainly uh, a topic that we'll continue to keep an eye on as it seems like CEOs uh, continue to. Uh, walk out of the the door and in many cases this year. It's, it's going to definitely be a record year for CEO departures, it looks like. Uh, let's go over to the real estate side of the world here, Matt, and everything you guys are doing over there in Million Acres. You published an article uh, recently on millionacres.com called Five Mistakes I Made the First Time I Bought a Rental Property. And Matt, when I saw this article, when I read the article, I thought, man, because I, I've had experience as a landlord as well with a rental property. Now, I will say when I bought when we bought our property, we didn't buy it for the purpose of renting it. It was our home first. And then when we moved, we decided just to keep it rented out. But the article, the article I thought was was really well done, and I could certainly empathize with a lot of things that you were talking about here, just as a homeowner in general. But talk about some of the things that that you mentioned here in the article.
1: <laughs> well I, I, I got to be honest, I almost didn't write the article in the first place <laughs> just because I thought, well, Someone's going to read this and say, "Why is this guy the real estate expert if he did all these things wrong?" <laughs>
0: because he learned from his mistakes, right? that's, and, and that's kind of the
1: point. Like you, you know, you live and you learn. Same with this, yep. like stock investing. I mean, how many dumb investments have you made? I made a, few, I made quite a few.
0: Oh, sure. Well, we're making all of these mistakes for our listeners so that they don't have to make them. <laughs> exactly. They're learning from us, Matt. It's very, it's a, it's a selfless act on our part, right?
1: Right. So, <laughs> I, I mean, out of all the mistakes on the list, I mean. The most costly one was not inspecting one of the units in a property, uh-huh. and that sounds like a no-brainer to do, and it is. But let me give you a little background on the situation. So, I bought a triplex. It's it's in kind of a trendier area near the University of South Carolina campus. So, I went to I went to view it with my realtor. Two of the units I could walk into, they were okay. I mean, not great condition, but I mean, when I was in my twenties, I would have lived there. And the third unit, I wasn't allowed to go in. So, that was kind of set off bells in my head, and I asked why. And the excuse made sense. The tenant worked overnight. Um, I could come back at night and view it if I wanted to. But I live about 45 minutes to an hour away from this property, and I didn't really want to do that. So, I never came back. And because my inspector only went there during the day, he wasn't allowed in there either. Now, this was an as-is sale. It's a very hot market, and we got in at what seemed like a really great price. And it was a really good price. So we kind of let it go. I invested in this one with a partner. I left his name out of the article. <laughs> but, um, so after we closed, the tenant that was back there was gone. I sent my property manager over to introduce herself, and the tenant was just not there. Hmm. So I got a call a few minutes later saying, you got to come and see this. So, I went into the unit, and I can't see how anybody lived there. I would, I would rather live in a bathroom in the subway station. Whoa. It was just, you know, grime everywhere. The carpet, like it, they must have had fifty cats living there. Um, there was a flea infestation that was out of control. I couldn't get more than three steps into the into the unit without fleas all over my legs. Oh man. Um, it was just, it was terrible. It was the worst place that someone actually lived in that I've ever seen. So, long story short, we got a bill for about eight thousand dollars in damages that Man. would need to be taken care of before my property manager could even rent it out. Because you know they're not trying to be a slumlord; they're not going to rent out a oh no, a, a disgusting place. Yeah. So that was 8000 dollars we really hadn't budgeted for this wasn't this isn't a very expensive market so 8000 dollars in repairs in one unit it's a lot so from that and from now on I have an unbreakable rule that I have to be able to inspect every every unit I need to read the leases to see if people have an out to get contact information in an event like this cuz we didn't even know you know who this tenant was to go after them wow. so a, that was one of the big mistakes. I won't go through all of them, but that was probably the one that was most costly and really taught me the biggest lesson.
0: Well, yeah, and I mean, I I, I can certainly I can certainly relate. I mean, that was one thing I found when we were renting our property, um, and we were doing it from another state. The property was in Georgia. We were in uh, here in Virginia, and um, it just became that much more important. I mean, the number one mistake that you list in the article, trusting someone else's word on tenants. I mean, that is, I think a a, a very good point there. Um, and to go through the others real quick, just just to make sure we give a mention. I mean, giving yourself too little time to close, I mean, that makes sense. If you've been through any type of of home purchase or sale, I mean, it, it, there's always something. There's a million million items to check off, and, and time is of the essence. Yeah, gotta, especially
1: with an investment property, it's yeah. actually uh, it, t- it could take a lot longer to get a loan for an investment property, and I Absolutely. didn't know that as a first timer. Yeah, and I mean it so, makes
0: sense. I mean the bank is looking at that and thinking it's a little bit different than your primary residence, and so they're going to take that into account. Um, I mean not putting enough money in reserves, being unprepared for repair costs, not knowing peak rental season. I thought that was a really interesting one. Um, talk a little bit about peak rental season and what 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 lesson did you learn from that?
1: Yeah, and I, I I I just didn't understand how much this varied from market to market. Okay, um, like I said, we're it's a trendy area right near the college, so I knew our tenants would be students. But I really didn't think that, you know, after the second week of August, it would be impossible to rent. Hmm. So, I mean, it, college students like to secure their housing in you know June, July, somewhere in there. Some some will go into August. So we closed on the property specifically in time to get it ready for the school year. But that one unit that needed eight thousand dollars in repairs. Also needed three weeks to get their repairs done. Yeah, I can imagine. So it wasn't ready until school was already back in session. And if you have a two bedroom unit on a college campus, students are your market. Yep. That's that's really it. Yeah, all I all I can really hope for is somebody to get kicked out of their own place to have a <laughs> <laughs> to have a tenant to move in. So, so know so
0: your market.
1: Se- yeah, know your market. I now, mean, in a in like a tourist market or, um, I mean, rental season depends where you are. I mean, if If it's a family home, you're looking at early summer. That's when people want to want to move. Yeah, you know when the kids just get out of school. So you know, know your market. It depends on the area you're in and the type of the property. So definitely something to think about that I really didn't even consider the first time.
0: Well, very good points there. And certainly, for everything else you guys are doing over there, check out millionacres.com, and we'll make sure to tweet that article out on the Industry focused Twitter feed. Uh, speaking of the Industry Focus Twitter feed, let's jump into um, Another installment of What's the Last Stock You Bought and Why. This has really turned into a nice little segment for us here, Matt, because, man, our listeners just love telling us the last stock they bought and why, and we want to hear it. So, we've got a few more for you today. And we've got one from uh, Jason Roos, at Roos Brews. He says, GT, low P.E., low dividend, payout ratio. Uh, what else does he say here? He says, every car on the road has tires, some more than four, long term forever hold, dripping more shares. And for those of you not recognizing the ticker, GT is the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. And absolutely, hey, cars got to have tires and they don't last forever. Good call, it's Jason. A great.
1: Great kind of portfolio staple. Yeah, I like that.
0: Uh, From Nate, at Nate Duchesne, he says, very boring, but WAL. And we're talking about Western Alliance Bank Corporation. Nate says, very boring, but WAL, so cheap by the numbers right now. Thanks, Nate. And finally, we've got Old School Mike at O School, and he says, last stock... M.K.C. McCormick. Why? Because you told me to. Mike, I love it. (laughs) I love it, man. I own it, too. I'm right there with you. Good purchase. I think that's one you'll want to own for a long time to come. So, hey, listen, what's the last stock you bought and why? Make sure and drop us a line at at industryfocusatfool.com. Hit us up on Twitter, at Focus. Let us know the last stock you bought and why, and we'll gladly read it on the show. Okay, Matt, let's wrap up things here for the week. We've got, as always, one for our listeners to watch. What is your one-to-watch for the coming week?
1: Um, I am watching Amer- TD Ameritrade. Uh, we talked last week about how the brokers are slashing their commissions and how you know it, a lot of people think it's going to you know, erase their profits altogether. I just don't think that's true. I think Ameritrade's in actually a really good position. It's got the best product out there, and now it's offering the best product among all of its competition at the same price as its competition. Whereas previously it was even a little more expensive than the competitors. So I think they'll actually have an influx of assets relative to their peers, and that it's a stock that you might want to consider looking at at these lower valuations.
0: I like it. Sounds like your dog likes it too.
1: Yeah, yeah, she does. Sorry about that. (laughs)
0: That's okay. Hey, uh, listen, we're dog lovers here. The more, the (laughs) merrier. Uh, My one to watch. You may have seen the headlines here. uh, Late last week, IAC Interactive Corporation decided to go ahead uh, and confirm what we thought they might do. They're going to divest their ownership in Match Group. And Match Group is, um, of course, the company that owns a lot of those different dating properties. Uh, and as it stands right now, IAC Interactive owns about 80% of Match Group, but they're going to go ahead and divest uh, divest that interest. Uh, now that that is not something that is um, a problem for IAC because thankfully they own a number of different uh brands and properties in the media space and elsewhere. Uh, they also own things like Angie's List and Home Advisor and Vimeo and Dot Dash. Uh, the revenue is generally uh. It's primarily generated from the Match Business and Angie Home Services. Uh, but um, you know this is a company with a long track record of making a lot of great investments and then realizing a lot of great gains on those investments. And shareholders all along the way um, are winning as well. I mean, the three-year chart here, the stock's up 260-plus percent. Uh, so, I think, if anything, it's kind of interesting that it gives It gives investors a reason maybe now to own both Match Group and IAC uh, Interactive, if they want. Uh, But as an example of a new investment IAC recently made, they just dropped $250 million into the car-sharing marketplace, Turo. Uh, which I think is really cool. Uh, you've got Barry Diller, who's the chairman and senior executive. He's been with the company since 2010. Insider ownership uh, just under 10 or just under 8. I'm sorry there. Um, and so I think that given the track record they've developed, the investments that they've made, uh, IAC Interactive is a really it's a neat looking business. And I would not let the fact that they're divesting uh, their interest in Match Group uh, deter you from considering it as an investment. I mean, if anything, I think it gives investors maybe a reason to own both of them now, but IAC, you're going to keep that one on the radar. Matt, thanks again for joining us this week. It's always great having you.
1: Yeah, always fun to be here.
0: Okay. And as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.